This year marks my fifth year as a full-time staff of GCCP. And I would say that this year is indeed a milestone for me, and it has been a great ride ever since, serving God's people here and trusting God's leading. Nevertheless, it is a reality that at times, I still wonder and cannot help but think, how in the world am I actually doing what I'm doing? How did I end up doing this? As part of my spiritual journey, while I may have grown up as a church kid, I also had my lost years. Mostly this happened during my high school life. I was very far from the Lord. I may show up at times at church because I was forced to, but I had other agendas. My life was a mess, and spiritual matters ain't had a place in my life at all. In fact, I remember during those times, I already made up my mind that one day when I grow up, when I become an adult, when I have my independence, I'm going to get rid of anything churchy. People have often asked, how did God turn your life around that he was able to direct your life to where you are today? Often I would attribute to pastors that I have encountered, messages that I have heard, uh, sometimes through the books that I have read, um, or sometimes certain events or experiences or instances that I have encountered as well. Until it dawned on me that there was something else actually happening behind the scenes of my life. After about six or seven years of wandering, searching, struggling, for whatever reason, I am led back again to our church. I remember very few recognized me from who was before this fat, sweaty kid, now coming back like a punk with a very long hair. But I remember until this one time that I've happened, that I've had this conversation with one of our longtime and faithful ministers. Many of you know her, Joyce T. And it was this opportunity or moment that somehow she had this time and moment that she really wanted to express and pour her heart out. And she said something along the lines of, you know, I am so glad to see you again at church. For all those years that we have missed you, that we don't see you at church, I was sincerely praying for you. And that is why I'm very happy to see you back and even see you, witness you serving the Lord. God indeed hears our prayers. Well, after all, prayers don't only change things, situations, circumstances. Prayers also changes hearts. It often starts with someone caring enough, seeking God enough, desiring Him to move in this person's life, and it makes all the difference. See, praying for another certainly is one of those ways that God can use to touch another's life and move them and bring them to a faith journey with Him. Well, perhaps this also is true of some of you. Maybe to some of you, there have been people or individuals that have also been actively involved in your spiritual journey. Maybe there were also prayer warriors that have played an integral part of your faith walk because they cared enough for you, because they cared for your eternity, and they desired that you will live a life loving God, knowing God. And they all did it starting with praying fervently for you. And that is what led you to know the Lord and know the salvation that there is in Jesus Christ. Well, you and I may or may not know them exactly in this lifetime. Perhaps we may simply meet them later on after this life when we meet them in heaven. 
But I guess another important thing that is at point here is that how about if you put it this way? How is your prayer life? How have you been actually actively involving yourself in another person's life through your prayers? How much time and attention have we been spending to fervently, intentionally seek and to pray to God that He would influence, that He would impact and move in the spiritual life of another person? More important yet, how much do we actually care for another's eternity that we would care that they would know Jesus Christ? Well, back in the New Testament age, the church, specifically in Ephesus, have had their battles to face. The city itself was ruled by a Roman, Roman government and it was highly paganized. They were highly influenced by the Greeks, by the Egyptians in their belief system. The church believers also experienced, faced persecution from the government. They were not very liked by the officials that time. And in addition to that, there were false teachers who were spreading false doctrines around them. And there were even those who were promoting that exclusivist mindset which presented Christianity that is only for an elite few. And with all of this happening around them, it is not hard to imagine that people that time were probably also hindered to come to know the gospel. Maybe people that time also veered away from Christianity because of hostility. Maybe others being led astray from the truth because of false teachings. And it is in this context that Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, who was at that time the one leading the Ephesian church. And Paul himself sees the situation at hand is something that needs attention, that he somehow sees that what is happening is affecting lives, more so it is affecting their eternity. And that is what led Paul to write 1 Timothy. And basically in chapter 1, he lays down the concerns that we have just mentioned, and now we come to chapter 2, while Paul writes to Timothy how he wants him to first and foremost respond to their situation. And in verses 1 to 2a, Paul writes, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for all kings, and all who are in authority. Well, from the words of Paul, it is not hard to recognize, to see that he was manifesting his passion. He was speaking from a heavy heart. And he wanted them to get the impression that what he is about to say is something that he wants them to take seriously. And he wants them to see it as something of primary importance. In essence, Paul's overarching thrust for them was to cultivate prayer. We see that by Paul using four synonymous terms for prayers, though he wasn't probably intending to elaborate on distinctions of all of them, but perhaps he was using different variety of nuances to actually get a full picture of the kind of prayer that he wants them to build up or to cultivate. But essentially, all of them refer to the same fundamental concept, practice, or discipline, which is them praying, communicating to God. Now here, Paul wasn't just telling Timothy to pray for just about anything. Rather, he was making a particular focus. And he says he wants them to pray for all men, specifically for all kinds of people. 
which in the context, Paul was talking about, he wanted them to pray for those who haven't trusted Christ. He wanted to pray for those who were wandering away from the truth or were struggling for the truth. Putting this all together, the key point that Paul wants us also to cultivate with regards to prayer is that praying for the lost must be an essential priority. Praying for the lost must be an essential priority. To put it in another way, praying for another, another's salvation should be a matter of significance for us, the believers, in our prayer life. See, the reality is all too often, if we would look closely and evaluate the matters that we most consistently and regularly pray about, it is not hard to recognize that essentially most of our attention to our prayers virtually center around our personal needs, the personal matters that happen in our life, common matters such as our health, our safety, our protection, our provision. Perhaps we also pray for these things with regards to other people like friends or family, and yet we rarely go beyond these things as well. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for these things. There isn't anything wrong to pray for such matters. It is expected that we lift up to God even our daily aspects. However, in line with this, as well as knowing the fact that there are those who are being led astray, there are those who are being spiritually hardened or are spiritually sensitive or are spiritually struggling, come to think of it, how often do we actually spend the time to pray for people's salvation? How concerned are we for another's spiritual well-being? Do we even care enough where people would be spending their eternity? Or are we content that we have the assurance for others and we just respect that and leave it up to them? Have we ever dedicated time and energy for us to pray for another's spiritual condition all because we are concerned that they would come to saving faith. You know, when I entered seminary, I can recall how I have really admired and have had a high regard toward Christian leaders, ministers, workers that I have met there, especially with regards to this aspect. I saw how intentional they are that even just going out, even just riding a taxi, they would even pray that they would have the opportunity to actually speak and talk to that taxi driver and maybe they can share the gospel to him. Some of them, in every single day, they would pray that God would open divine appointments, that they would be able to meet someone that day who needs to hear the gospel because they, need, because they know that it is so important that people need to know where their eternity will be. It's interesting as well on a side note here how Paul specifically have singled out kings and all who are in authority. Well, guess what? During this time, Nero was actually the, Ro the king of the Roman Empire. He was known to be a very cruel authority and he persecuted so many Christians. In fact, there was this one instance that he accused them of, bur of a burning incident where in fact it is him who was responsible for that. You see, ancient and even our modern times, rulers, leaders can often become so tyrannical, even be disrespectful of God and His people. They're often targets of bitterness or hatred, and 
they also are often remote or distant from people, and therefore they have the tendency to be indifferent, and people won't care about them at all. I remember this chaplain of the U.S. Senate named Edward Everett Hale. He was once asked, Dr. Uh, Mr. Hale, do you pray for the senators? Dr. Hale replied, no, I look at the senators and actually pray for our country. And I think that's true virtually every place nowadays, right? But Paul says, you know, even them, they need the gospel. Even them, you need to pray for. Because at the end of the day, even them will, will face judgment. Even them will have a life after this. And God also cares for that. And so God says, even them you are to pray for. Now that Paul has established his appeal for them to pray for the lost, he's now going to give three reasons why we should eagerly pray for the lost. And here's what Paul writes first in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2b. He writes, the first reason is that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Paul says the first reason that we must earnestly pray for the lost is because praying for the lost can allow spiritual progress. Now, Paul is saying, as we pray for people around us, our hope is that it can pave the way for us to better carry out our spiritual pursuits. The point wasn't for us to live a life free from trouble or for personal ease or enjoyment. Rather, it is understanding that the spiritual condition, the spiritual sensitivity of the people around us will have a significant impact on our spiritual endeavors. That is why when we pray and seek God to move in people's lives, when we allow Him to actually mold their hearts, it is also trusting God that it can better help us to fulfill our God-given purpose and mission as followers of Jesus Christ. You see, you and I, our calling is to make the good news of salvation be known to all people, that they would come to know the truth so that they can be reconciled with God. And it all begins with prayer. When you and I consistently and intentionally commit to pray for the people around us to come to faith in Christ, it is demonstrating that we are trusting God, that there is no situation beyond God to control and there is no life that is beyond God to change. I know of a friend who was the first in his family to become a believer. And it was a real struggle for him to exercise his faith, especially that his family was a devout Buddhist and didn't want to have anything to do with the Christian faith. Things became even more challenging when this friend started working for the family business, mainly because of the, the stark difference when it comes to principles and values. Nevertheless, this friend tried to continually be a good testimony and he fervently prayed for the family that one day they would be open to hear the gospel. Well, to cut the long story short, after years of praying and trusting God, there came a point when finally one of the parents became open and this parent heard the gospel and accepted Christ which later on paved the way for the rest of the family to be led to Christ as well and to commit to the Christian faith, which later on also made an impact to their employees who now also know Christ. And therefore, 
bringing their Christian influence into their company and even to the customers or the clients that they serve. You know, someone have said, even those who will not allow you to speak to them about God cannot prevent you speaking to God about them. See, prayer changes everything. It can allow us to participate and witness what God, what only God can do. I remember of this story of an 18-year-old schoolboy who happened to wander into his father's library and have read a gospel tract one Sunday afternoon while his parents were out for the weekend. He couldn't shake off after reading the gospel message and finally he fell on his knees and accepted Christ as his Savior. Later on, after a couple of days, his mother went back home after being away and the boy told the mother of this good news. And the mother expressed herself and said, you know, you telling me about what happened that Sunday afternoon, you know what I was doing during that time? I was actually praying and I was suspending the rest of that afternoon hoping that you would be able to hear about this Christ and that you would also become part of God's family. And I am so glad that you did and you have accepted Christ as your Savior. And who would have imagined that this young boy would one day become that great Hudson Taylor who have led the China Inland Missions. You see, every time you and I would take the opportunity to pray for the lost, it can become a means that will bring them a step closer to the cross. Well, here's the next reason that we would want to cultivate prayer for the lost. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And here we see Paul says the second reason that, we must, that must motivate us to pray for the lost is because praying for the lost aligns us with God's pleasure. Praying for the lost aligns us with God's pleasure. Paul is saying that praying for people, specifically for them to be saved, for them to come to a knowledge of the truth, is something that God finds favor in. It is something that brings him great joy. The reason is because he himself being the Savior, it is in his nature to save. Therefore, it is his desire that he can reach as many people as possible as well. In fact, his desire is that all people would come to hear and know the truth. You see, these verses attest to the fact that God's intent, God's desire of this, with this offer of salvation is indeed a universal, indeed a universal one. However, while it is true that God desires salvation for all, this does not suggest or mean or to propose that all people will ultimately be assured or guaranteed to be saved. You see, this is a prevailing false ideology nowadays, which we call universalism. The thinking or the belief that because God loves everyone, at the end of the day, no one is going to suffer for eternity. See, the Bible is very clear that the choice to be saved lies on the individual. Anyone who desires to be saved must make that personal decision to put their faith in Christ. And apparently, even the Bible tells us the sad truth that not all will be making that choice. God has given people the freedom 
to choose whether to accept or to reject. And that is part of his, his love. Because when people reject the gospel, you see, this gives God great pain. Every person, each life that is in existence, are all equally made in the image of God. And therefore, each one is equally valued in God's eyes. In fact, the Bible gives us a glimpse of how precious, how treasured a soul is to God. That every time a soul is redeemed, God throws a party in heaven and the heavens rejoice. And just as the enemy would want to pull down as many people as he can, God also desires that he can redeem home as much souls as there can be as well. That is why when God witnesses his own people actively communicating, actively wanting to be involved, concerned with people's salvation as much as he cares, it is no doubt that such a conduct, such a pursuit would warm his heart, would touch his heart, and would certainly bring him great satisfaction and delight. Now, some of you may be aware that since about a year or two ago, one of my growing interests is indulging with coffee. I love every bit of it from brewing to consuming to even making some to serve others of it. It's been my part of my everyday routine and I just couldn't go a day without it, whether it be at home or at work. And I just naturally find enjoyment and pleasure every time I do it. But since I do it every single day, my kids see me, th- see me also do this on a daily basis. And eventually, my daughter, since she noticed this, would always make a way not for her to actually be involved. He would try to make it a point to actually join in. And she would often express how she really wanted to help. I try my best to involve her, take, make her part of the process, and appreciate her heart. But what, often, what, that I, what, what I often find warming to my heart is when every time I would hear her say, Daddy, when I grow up, I'm going to make coffee for you. You see, I think that somehow that similarly demonstrates what it means or what it looks like when we, God's children, resonate also the heart of God. That we cannot help but want to be involved We cannot help but want to be part of the things that God finds joy in. Likewise, that is what happens when you cultivate the same heart for lost people through our prayers. As we see people from God's eyes, we would also turn and be compelled to pray and eagerly anticipate and witness lives turning back to God one life at a time. I love what William Law once said, there is nothing that makes us love a man so much as prayer for him. Now, such prayers of one who seeks to please God's heart, that whatever breaks God's heart also breaks ours, and whatever brings him joy, we also want to pour ourselves into so that we can celebrate what God finds delight in. Someone have said, God's promises show his heart. Your prayers show yours. What does your prayer show? How much of our prayers have we been investing and interceding for those whom God deeply care about? Now let's move ahead and look into Paul's final point. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-7, to Paul writes, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, 
the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. And here Paul says the third reason that must further our resolve to pray for the lost is because praying for the lost advances Christ's pursuit. Praying for the lost advances Christ's pursuit. Paul stresses here the fact that there isn't really any other God out there. Therefore, since there is only one true God over all people, He is also the same God that everyone must come to know. And as the one and only true God, it is only Him as well that can determine and provide the one and only true way towards Him. It's like when someone would like to meet me or they would like to visit me on my place. It is the direction that I will give. It is the pathway that I will be giving that will be the valid one, that will determine really how it is to get to me because I own the place, I determine how to get to my place. In the same way that this verse tells us, as well as in other scriptures, it again explicitly affirms and validates the truth that it is Jesus Christ that God has provided so that man can be reconciled with God. And Paul says what makes it possible is because Jesus' death became as a ransom on our behalf. You know, this concept of a ransom, it has the idea of a payment. It's a payment when someone is to be set free from captivity or someone being liberated from slavery. And this is what Christ's death also have accomplished. It's like a payment. Not that he owed anything, but that it is we who owed a debt we could not pay. And because of his sacrifice, it provided us mankind the deliverance, the forgiveness that we need so that we will no longer be held captive or enslaved by our sin. Jesus being the God-man, the only perfect and sinless sacrifice makes him the only qualified mediator that can bridge the separation between sinful man and holy God. That is why Jesus' sacrificial death is the only one that is capable and sufficient to make all men savable. There's no other option, and everyone who desires to come to God must come through him. You see, it is in God's wisdom he did it this way, right? He didn't want people to be confused. He didn't want people to second guess. And that's why he made it one way, for free, sufficient for everyone. It's actually a good thing when you think about it. However, on the contrary, our postmodern culture thinks otherwise. Popular beliefs of today pervade our times, and what they advocate is often what we call pluralism or relativism, which basically holds to the fact that there are no absolutes in this world. They say that in this day and age, you can pick and choose whatever you want to believe, and all of them are valid as long as you are sincere. If that makes you happy, go ahead and believe it. See, this is another false ideology that the world is using to, to lure and blind many of our generation to accept and believe. And you see, this is a real challenge that we often encounter as well whenever we dialogue with young people. I have encountered students who say, sure, they believe, they accept, uh, they know the Christian faith. But for them, 
they aren't really convinced that it is the only true and valid faith. You see, faith in itself is worthless. If faith is not properly founded, it can lead to nothing other than disaster. And I would like to show you that if, I, if you would imagine with me for a moment here. And I would like to share an analogy which I suppose how a postmodern thinking or belief can actually look like or play out. Imagine with me one night, cars were speeding along a main highway and they were about to cross bridges to reach another city. The drivers had faith in their cars and in the bridges over the streams which, and they cross whichever they feel like passing through to get them to the other side. They passed over some bridges about 50, 60 miles an hour. Everything they see was lovely. Everything went smoothly. And there were even cars that were passing alongside them. They see the bays, the rivers, uh, beside them, under them. And along those bridges, somehow they even see some reroutes available, but for the most part, people simply ignored them. Well, eventually what happens is that as each car was nearing to the crossing of the bridge, what can only be seen is a pitch black gap. Cars simply zoom smoothly up to the gap and eventually vanished. And upon that vanishing, each time there was this booming splash and maybe there were also some rough shouts and screams that were heard as well. While all the drivers had faith in the bridge of their choosing, the reality was that those bridges were out except for one and only bridge that actually were able to cross over that full stretch and were able to cross over successfully to the other city. And I think that is how it looks like as well of this postmodern thinking, that everyone feels like they're coasting, they're going to cross it someday, somehow. But the Bible is very clear. God says it is only in Jesus. John 14, 6 tells us, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is how I visualize a postmodern way of thinking may end up as well. They can go through life believing, holding to whatever they choose or claim is true for them, only to realize that at the end of life, there is no more turning back and it is already too late. That is why all the more it makes it very crucial for us to pray for people not to be blinded so that they can come to know and they can be genuinely convinced with the truth that there is only one true way. There is no other option apart from Jesus Christ. And everyone gets only one life to decide that they can only determine, that will determine where they will end up. And there's no second chances after this life. What a waste it would be, isn't it, to see a good life lost, spent in eternal damnation just because they believed a lie and thereby even missing out on the salvation and the sacrifice that Jesus already offered for free and open, freely and openly. And even I remember Andy Stanley once said, good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. Christ's death and his ransom is sufficient to save, but its saving effects are limited to those who would respond in faith. And what often paves the way for it is when one begins with our prayers for the people who need it. 
as you pray for specific people to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, how familiar are we with the potential barriers that are hindering them from trusting Jesus as the only way? What divine intervention can you ask God for so that he can use you to introduce the only way to salvation and would lead to eternal life? Now, as I was thinking through and pondering upon the truths and the principles that we have learned from this passage, I came across this poem that I think very well resonates what we have talked about and exemplifies the heart that we seek to cultivate in praying for the lost. And this poem is entitled, Traveling on Your Knees. And it goes like this. Last night, I took a journey to a land far across the seas. I didn't go by boat or plane. I trusted on my knees. I saw so many people there in deepest depths of sin. And Jesus told me I should go, that there were souls to win. But I said, Jesus, I can't go and work with such as these. He answered quickly, yes, you can by traveling on your knees. He said, you pray, I'll meet the need. You call and I will hear. Be concerned about lost souls of those both far and near. And so I tried it, knelt in prayer, gave some hours of ease. I felt the Lord right by my side while traveling on my knees. As I prayed and saw souls saved and hurting bodies healed, I saw God's workers' strength renewed while laboring on the field. I said, yes, Lord, I have a job. My desire, thy will to please. I can go and heed thy call by traveling on my knees. See, the practice of praying for another's salvation is something that cannot be forced by an outward command or urging but must be prompted by an inner conviction that we see its importance and need. And you see, the, the degree by which we believe will be the degree by which we will also pray. As I close, let me share with you this story. There was this town wherein the spiritual condition was struggling, it was spiritually down, there was no life. People had very little interest about pursuing their spiritual life. Well, some years ago, there was this young girl who was part of that town who was also part of the church that was there. And apparently, she was very sick and did not expect to recover. But because of her love for Jesus, she was troubled and she really wanted to continue to serve. She felt that she wanted to use the remaining days of her life to be actively involved in the Lord's work. One day, her pastor suggested that, how about if she would make a list of people in their little town and she would pray for those who needed Christ, that she would pray that these people, one by one, could be able to put their faith in Christ. And this young girl took, her, took that advice, actually made a list, and prayed for them often. Sometime later, God started a revival in that town, in that village, the girl heard of how the people there started to coming to Christ and she continued to pray even more. And as she continued to hear reports, she checked off the names of those who actually have been led to the Lord. She checked the names that were in her list that she realized have now come to faith in Christ. And after the girl died, a prayer list that was actually found under her bed and they found 56, 56 names under her pillow and 
all of them had put their faith in Christ, the last one being putting that person's faith at the night before her death. Imagine if one sickly, bedridden young girl can bring 56 souls simply by praying, even until her last breath. How much more can that happen? How much more can God work if God's people would collectively, faithfully sought out for the people that need God through their prayers? Imagine the many lives that can be changed for eternity because it all began with your prayers. Imagine how it would be like when we would enter heaven, that we would be able to meet people and would come to us and say, thank you. I'm here because of your prayers. It made all the difference in my life, and I'm here because of you today. See, such is the power of a specific prayer life, specifically praying for people who need the Lord. Do you have a prayer list? Maybe it's time that we start making one ourselves. Because remember, praying for the lost must be an essential priority. Because when we pray for the lost, it allows spiritual progress. When we pray for the lost, it aligns our hearts with God's pleasure. And when we pray for the lost, it advances Christ's pursuit. Let's ask God to burden our hearts, to captivate our mind with people that he has placed in our life, whom we can reach out to, whom we can start praying for even today. Because our prayers, they are never in vain. And our prayers can make a difference. God delights when our prayers would resonate his heart. Let us be eager to pray for the lost. Because when you and I pray for the lost, it is an opportunity to bring them a step closer to the cross. Shall we pray? Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege of prayer. Thank you for the privilege that we can bring before you the concerns, the burdens of our hearts, and most especially that we can bring to you the people that concern us, the people that need you. Thank you so much, Father God, that you have allowed us to know the truth, that you have allowed us to maybe been prayed for by someone. That is why today we ha- know the truth, we know the Savior, and we have an eternity that is secured. It is our prayer, Father God, that we as well, that you would bring to mind and to heart people that need the Lord, that people that need you in their life, that need the truth so that they can also have a secured eternity, that they would experience life abundant. And I pray, Father God, that as your people would do that, would pray for them, you would also use, Lord God, our prayers to influence the people that is around us. You would give us the intentionality and the desire, the burden to really be concerned for people's salvation and for their eternity. We thank you, Father, once again for this privilege and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.